Can I ask you a question this morning? How many of you like your alarm clock? How many of you don't like your alarm clock? You have a love-hate relationship with your alarm clock, right? Now, I've heard the saying, and as time goes on, the saying becomes more and more real, but I, I heard this saying, maybe you've heard it as well, you know that you are getting old when your favorite time of day is over when the alarm clock goes off. <laughs> Can any of you uh, identify with that? Okay, we have a few honest ones. However true or not true that saying much, uh, may be, and as much as we may not like our alarm clocks, they're vital to us, aren't they? Many of us can give personal testimony that our alarm clocks uh, spared us the embarrassment of being late to an appointment, being late to work, uh, being late to school. Many of us can also say the opposite, that we slept right through our alarm clock, or we forgot to turn it on. Or I remember one time, um, during, during I was visiting my, bro- my older brother, and this was back when he was doing a church plant, so everything had to be set up, and it was, uh, we were there over the holidays, so Saturday was New Year's Eve, um, and for some reason, we used our, our phones as alarm clocks, and my brother said, Adam, you got to get up fast. The, alarms, the, the phones did not change. We're late. And uh, we all had to scurry about as we thought about setting up chairs and tables in the whole high school auditorium. So we need our alarm clocks. They are blessings. Well, in this passage of 1 Corinthians, verses 29 to 34 of chapter 15, Paul is sounding a wake-up alarm. If the Corinthian church does not wake up, as verse 34 states, if they do not wake up, they will be shamed. And this is going to bring us to our fourth key principle concerning the hope of the gospel. We've been looking at the realities of our hope in the gospel throughout chapter 15. And this morning we are going to look at reality number four concerning the hope of the gospel. If we're going to live in the hope of the gospel, we must be awakened to the reality of the gospel in us and the gospel working through us in our everyday lives. The hope of the gospel, number four, awakens us. And in this passage this morning, we are going to see three key realms that demand, in our lives, that demand, the gospel demands that we be awakened. Because it is so easy to stay asleep. This morning, once again, we're going to see the key principle that we've seen throughout our entire series that we must cling to what truly matters. I hope that this phrase echoes through your mind as we have been in this series for a while. If we are to be a hope-filled people, we are going to be a people that cling to the gospel. 
And a hope-filled people, we're going to see this morning, are an awakened people. We're not content to stay in slumber. Let's pray this morning. Father, I pray that you would lead us, that you would direct us. God, I pray that the truth of your word would shine in our hearts. Father, I pray that we would be awakened. Lord, the easy thing about physical sleep is that we very consciously try to go to sleep. But Lord, many times we can enter a spiritual type of slumber without even fully realizing it. So God, I pray that you would meet with us as as you already have done as we've been worshiping you together. And Lord, as we now look at your word, that you would continue to meet with us, to speak to us, to show us areas where maybe we have fallen asleep, realities that we have forgotten, things that we have let slip. And Lord, thank you that we're able to celebrate the Lord's Supper together as a church family. We're able to remember where our hope truly does lie. Lord, we are people of the gospel. God, I pray that you would work in our hearts and lives today. In Jesus' name, amen. The reality of the gospel The first area that we are going to look at that we may need to be awakened to in our hearts and lives, we're going to look at this interesting verse in verse 29. This is one of the most difficult, confusing verses in the New Testament. What is Paul talking about here? It says in verse 29, Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people being baptized on their behalf? What in the world is that talking about? I want to make an application point, and we will look a little bit into what uh, Paul may or may not be talking about. But I think that the first area that we need to be awakened to in our lives, that the hope of the gospel demands that we be awakened to, is our daily practices. The things that we are doing day after day after day, whether we're conscious of those things or not. There's a very specific practice that's going on here we see in the beginning of verse 29. It's this weird baptism of the dead. What in the world is the baptism of the dead? Now Paul just finishes. You remember in verses 12 to 19, he says, listen, if if the dead are not raised, then that means Christ is not raised. And we have absolutely no hope in this world. We are of all people the most to be pitied. And then Paul goes into a theological discussion in verses 20 to 28. And remember verse 20 is that big transition verse. But in fact Christ has been raised from the dead. That's that's the good news of the gospel. 
And Paul says that the resurrection of the dead, it is all about Christ and his resurrection. Look at what he did, past, present, and future. Verses 20 to 28. We know how the story ends. And now Paul, in verse 29, starts with this word, otherwise, and he transitions now to a bit of a logical discussion. If the resurrection did, uh, does not happen, there's no resurrection of the saints, why are people being baptized on behalf of the dead? Why is that even an issue for you, ch- uh, church in Corinth, if there's no resurrection of the dead? Now, there's speculation what this baptism of the dead is. In fact, uh, one individual said that there are over 40 different interpretations that people have come up with concerning what this means. Uh, another individual says specifically that one phrase, being baptized on behalf of the dead, there are over 200 different interpretations on how to understand that single phrase. So our goal is not to somehow come down to exactly what this says. I agree with with what one commentator says. He says, Paul's purpose is not to explain or even defend the practice of baptism for the dead, but to show the Corinthians their inconsistency. Why are they being baptized? Why are they baptizing for the dead if there is no resurrection? So very, very quickly to just talk about this idea of resurrection from the dead, there's a lot of speculation as to what it means. And of course, you know, uh, uh, being good, uh, being wanting to hold to Scripture, you don't base an entire doctrine on a one single phrase in the Bible that's, that, that many people disagree on. The the Mormon church, they do practice baptism of the dead. That's not a scriptural practice. But I just want to go over kind of two main viewpoints as to this idea of baptism for the dead. One of them would be, could this practice have been somehow baptizing for the benefit of those who have already died? Saints that or individuals that have already died, and somehow there are individuals that are saying, you know what, they, th- these individuals were never baptized. Maybe they were never even had come to Christ because in the New Testament, salvation and baptism are intricately tied together, and they still are today. So maybe these individuals possibly were unbelievers that have died and now these individuals think that somehow by being baptized in their name, they can do some sort of a merit system for them. Of course, we know that this is heresy. And if this was the case, Paul is not saying at all that this was a right practice. More than likely, I would say this is probably not what's happening. Because there's, no, there's been no historical record found that this practice ever existed in the early church. In fact, this practice was denounced by early church fathers as a misunderstanding of this text as history continues. 
Other people talk about, well, maybe it was somehow a benefit for those already dead that it was those who died without having been baptized, yet they did believe in the gospel. And, and they didn't get a chance to get baptized. Think about the thief on the cross. So may, maybe, maybe Christians were getting baptized in their name, and we know that that's not really a scriptural practice. It's definitely less not scriptural than the, than the first one I, I just mentioned. But there's another, there's another idea that possibly this phrase, being baptized on behalf of the dead, that word on behalf can many times mean on account of. Being baptized on account of the dead. So what may have been happening is that the dead here, the dead here are in the context of those who, are, who have died in Christ. They are going to be resurrected. And, and it could have been that individuals saw the testimony of faith that these now dead saints had, the hope that the church has that we will see them again, they will be resurrected, and individuals, on account of their testimony, are themselves coming to Christ and being baptized. That is a possible and more biblical explanation. But we don't know. So what we see here is the big picture. The, the, and Paul says, here's the rationale at the end of verse 29. No matter what this practice looked like, look at what Paul says at the end of verse 29. If the dead are not raised at all, why are people being baptized on their behalf? So whether this was a right practice or a wrong practice that the Corinthian church was doing, and we know there was a lot of wrong going on, Paul says, why do this if there is now no hope for those who are dead? Do these actions make sense if there's no resurrection from the dead? Why would they be doing what they are doing? And I think it's important for us as we look at this very first verse of, of this paragraph of this text to ask ourselves, to ask yourself, why are you doing what you are doing? Could there be an inconsistency in your actions in what you are believing? Are you creating an inconsistency by believing one thing? In the case of the Corinthian church, no resurrection, or at least some in the church were teaching that. And an inconsistency of doing another thing, baptism on account of the dead. This requires needed self-evaluation in, in all of our lives. Why are we doing what we are doing? Listen, if you are not living through Christ for Christ Monday through Saturday... Are you creating a hypocrisy for yourself of what you are doing on Sunday? If you are saying that you believe that God is great and that God is sovereign and that God is in control, are you spending the 24 hours of your day worrying and trying to figure things out for yourself? Do you see how the inconsistencies in our lives, they know no end? 
You see, we have to take stock of what we truly believe and act accordingly. So the application here is do not allow yourself to do one thing and say you believe another. We need a checks and a balances within us. That we need to allow the Holy Spirit and even others to to be able to, to speak into our lives and say, you know what? Believing this, but I'm acting this way. I claim I'm holding to this, but man, I'm living like this. Where is the inconsistencies in your life? I know in my life there are many. And if we are going to be awakened to the hope of the gospel, we must let that hope penetrate even the deepest pockets of our lives that we are clinging to. Because the gospel provides hope even in those deepest, darkest areas. If we're willing to come to Christ in humility... Folks, we need to be awakened to our daily practice. But there's a second area that we need to be awakened to in our lives, and that is our daily endurance. Can I ask you this morning, how are you enduring in your Christian life? Paul brings up the example of what the Corinthian church is doing in verse 29, and now he is going to give a personal example of his practice and how if there is no resurrection, why would he be doing the things that he is doing? I want to read verses 30 to the beginning of 32 to uh, follow along with me. Now using himself and his companions as an example, he says, Now why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die every day. Now what do I gain if, humanly speaking, I have fought with beasts at Ephesus if the dead are not raised? You see, what Paul is saying here is in our lives, we endure now for the hope of what is to come. What is the hope that is to come? Paul just went into detail about this in verses 20 to 28. Christ is victor. Christ has and will subjugate all things to himself through the power and the authority of God. All things will be restored to God the Father, that he will be all in all. This is cause for Paul to rejoice in the hope is to come. Now many times we talk about endurance, and what we are not talking about is putting our hands in our pockets and woe is me, you know, I got to endure this life, I got to endure this other hardship, I got to, you know, I'm making it. No, that's not living in the hope of the gospel. Endurance is that we see the hope, we know the hope that Christ has given within us. It gives us a confidence to face 
the future, to face the present, good, bad, or somewhere in the middle, with biblical, contented, hope-filled endurance. You see, what enduring now in light of the hope is to come, what it looks like, first of all, is self-denial. Paul talks about in verse 30 being in constant danger. Paul says, why are we in danger every hour? Wow. Now, it's not, Paul's not literally saying every single second of every waking day we are in danger. He's talking about a pattern of life. That we are in constant danger. Danger here, danger there. Suffering was to mark Paul's life. Did you know when he got converted? I believe that the prophet was, was Agabus. Uh, G, uh, Agabus had a vision. Jesus said, go to Paul that he may receive his sight, give him further direction. He's my chosen vessel. This is what the Lord said to Agabus. The Lord said to him, go. should have that on the overhead. Go. For he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Right from the get-go, Jesus says, Paul is going to reach the nations, but he is going to do it suffering for my name. And Paul chose this path willingly. In fact, in 2 Corinthians, you don't have to turn there for sake of time. I would encourage you to, to, uh, if you write in your Bible or you're taking notes, write 2 Corinthians 11, 23 to 28. And you can read about some of the constant danger Paul was in. I'll just give you a quick uh, summary of some of it. In verse 24, he says, Five times I received at the hand of the Jews the forty lashes, less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, robbers, my own people, Gentiles, uh, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers. On and on it goes. This is the type of constant danger that Paul was willing to endure for the hope of the gospel. None of us have seen this type of difficulty. That doesn't mean that our difficulty is any less real or is not burdensome and and brings fear. But we can take heart, like like, uh, the author of Hebrews says, That we are to to take courage. None of us have yet resisted to blood. But even in that, we have hope. What does self-denial look like? Or what does uh, daily endurance look like? It looks like self-denial. What does self-denial look like? Being willing to go through even constant danger. But then look at verse 31. I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die every day. Self-denial looks like daily death. 
daily death to self. Paul says in, in, here in verse 31, I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul's not talking about a sinful pride here. Paul is saying, I am pretty much making an oath of what I endure, and you are the trophy, you are the example of my endurance that you have been won to Christ. I take pride in you, Corinthian church, not through what I've done, but through Jesus Christ. Paul's heartbeat was seeing the gospel advance. Seeing the gospel be at work. Paul already knows the gospel's at, at work in him. He says, it is not I that will it, but him that works in me. And as Paul confidently serves Christ, he desires to also see the work in other people's lives. To the point where he says, I die daily. It's interesting that he says, I die every day when this whole topic is about resurrection from the dead. Paul is not saying, I physically die daily and somehow I come back to life. He is talking about a self-death in order to serve Christ. Doesn't it sound familiar to what Jesus said in Luke 9? If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Can I ask you this morning, are you taking up your cross daily? This is a cross that Jesus carries with you. The only cross where someone was left alone to carry was the cross of Jesus. And we even see the example there where the individual was called to help Jesus carry his cross to the hill. This is the heart of what Paul says in Philippians 1.21, For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. In other words, Paul's saying, whether in life or death, my aim is to glorify God. If I live, I'm going to live for Christ. If I die, it's going to be gain, because I'm going to be with Him. Christ marks my life. What marks your life? Is it the seeking of pleasure? Is it the desire for comfort? Is it getting all of the solutions and living a life where all of the answers are checked off and, and you're, in, you're in this state of temporal happiness and peace? You see, folks, and, and this is huge. If we as believers claim to be associated with Jesus' resurrection, that just like Jesus was raised from the dead, that we have that hope too, then we as followers of Jesus need to say, I'm therefore also willing to be associated with him in his death. We don't have that much of a problem saying, yeah, I want to be associated with Jesus' resurrection. 
But what about the daily dying that we associate with his death as well? What did this constant self-denial look like? It looked like constant danger. It looked like daily death. But look at verse 32. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? Here, Paul is saying, self-denial looks like opposition to the gospel. We are living in a world that is opposed to the gospel. We are living in a culture that is opposed to the gospel. It should not surprise us as Christians when we see unbelieving activity going on in our world. Why? Because unbelievers are acting like unbelievers. Remember the two groups of people? Those who are still in Adam and those who are in Christ. We should not be shocked if we understand Romans 1, Romans 2, Romans 3, that unbelievers are going to act like unbelievers. But those are opportunities for the gospel to shine brighter. Not trying to make the world be more Christians outwardly in their actions. No, seeking to Spread the gospel like Paul did to make an internal change. So many times as Christians, we focus on the externals. And we see here the greatness to which Paul went for the gospel. That he was willing to face the greatest of consequences for Christ's name, for Christ's glory, for the sake of the gospel. He talks about this um, being brought before the beasts in Ephesus. A similar circumstance, of course, Ephesus was in Asia. And Paul taught, uh, this isn't necessarily the same situation he's talking about, but we read of another encounter in 2 Corinthians 1, where Paul's testimony to the Corinthian church later, we do, we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly, get the wording here, we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despised even of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But that, and get this, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Can you imagine being so burdened down that you despise of life itself? I mean, I think of Job. He was there. Different types of trials, but he was there. You can think of some character, um, some individuals in the Bible, maybe not a whole lot, but Paul was there for the cause of Christ. Many of us, myself included, would probably be saying, and Paul wasn't perfect, he probably went through these times too, where, Lord, I'm doing this for you, and look what's happening to me. But at the end of the day, he was willing to face opposition 
Now this expression, being brought before the beast, is most likely like what Paul is doing when he says in verse 31, I die every day, or in verse 30, we face danger every hour. Um, Being brought before the beast is most likely just, uh, it's an expression that more than likely Paul was not brought before beasts. Other Christians, in, in the book of Hebrews, it says they were brought before beasts. Paul says, for, uh, Paul is, for instance, a Roman citizen. Roman citizens in the culture of the day were not allowed to be brought before the wild animals. That was something that was, was reserved for non-Roman citizens because it was such a cruel thing to do and a way to go. Paul uses a similar expressions. For instance, 2 Timothy 4, verse 16 and 17, he talks about, the message of the gospel being fully proclaimed to the Gentiles. And he says, so I was rescued from the lion's mouth, talking about those who opposed the gospel. In Psalm 22, David uses a similar expressions, uh, referring to, to those who oppose God as animals, beastly in character. Psalm 22, which also points us to the Messiah, he says, uh, David writes, Many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. You see, those who oppose the gospel, this is their nature, this is their character, like ravaging animals. Deprived of their humanity, their true humanity, of what God has created humanity for. We read in Daniel 7 of of the beasts. These kingdoms, these empires, these rulers are compared to beasts. Are we willing to face this type of opposition for Christ? One thing about culture in the world kind of progressively moving away from any type of biblical truth, I think one main blessing is it will separate the wheat from the tares. You're either going to be willing to stand for Scripture and Scripture alone, or you're going to say the price is just too great. That is why we need to make the gospel our focus. Not ideologies or secondary matters, but the truth of the gospel. That is where offense is had when people reject the truth of the gospel. Paul continues in verse 32. If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. I mean, Paul's like, here I am facing all of this stuff. If the dead are not raised, takes us back to verses 12 to 19, where of all people most to be pitied, then let's just throw a party. Because now is all we got. But folks, this is not true. Verse 32 at the end here shows us we cannot live for the here and now. Let us not take this mindset. Did you know that this is a quotation from Isaiah 22, verse 13? 
In the Old Testament, the, 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 Israel, the, the, the uh, Jewish people, they were called by the prophets to repent. What did Israel do? They said, ah, it's no use. Let's just take our fate and let's make the, boat, the, the best of it now. Let us not follow that example to say, I'm going to live for the here and now when we as Christians are called to live for eternity. And that takes us to our third and final point this morning. Our, our, our need to be awakened in our daily practice, our need to be awakened in our endurance, and thirdly, our need for discernment. As we traverse this life, we can be so easily deceived. Verse 33, do not be deceived. That word deceived has the idea of being allow, allowing yourself to be led astray. How are we so often deceived? Paul then makes a quotation, bad company ruins good morals. Very similar to Proverbs 13, whoever walks with the wise becomes wise, but the companion of fools will suffer harm. Very similar to Psalm, uh, uh, to the Psalms that says those uh, who, who walk with scorners, who sit with, I uh, forget how it goes, um, those people that are hanging around those that are scorners and mockers, that, that indicates who they really are. Bad company ruins good morals. That word company has the idea of a close association. 1 Corinthians, Paul has already told them in chapter 5, verse 6, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. Paul is not simply trying to make these Christians have good morals. He's trying to, to show them that false beliefs and outward behavior go hand in hand. Who are these people that are, are the bad company? Look at verse 12. Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? The bad company Paul's referring to is the some here that have infiltrated the church with false teaching. And if they are to hang around these people, if they are to listen to these people, it is going to affect their beliefs that will manifest itself outward into then living in light of those false beliefs. You see, folks, we need to wake up. Many of us this morning find ourselves in what verse 34 talks about, a drunken stupor. Wake up, verse 34 says, from your drunken stupor as is right, and do not go on sinning, for some have no knowledge of God, and I say this to your shame. These Christians, almost as if they're in a drunken stupor, they don't know what's going on around them, they've lost sense of time, they've become intoxicated by believing the wrong things. They've allowed themselves to take in the wrong things, and sin has begun to dominate their lives. All of the things that we've been reading in the book of 1 Corinthians, divisions, overlooking sin, 
seeking to be known and, and applauded by people through certain spiritual gifts. You see, these people that claim to have a knowledge of God, actually, the verse says, have no knowledge of God. In fact, they are the ones who are false witnesses concerning God. So as we close this morning, we must see that we must cling to what truly matters. If we are to cling to the gospel to be a hope-filled people, it is going to require us to wake up. 